The one thing that I would say of the utmost importance is to make sure that you don't become flippant and that you do validate a person, right? People in pain are in pain and it's a very scary thing. People are worried about what it means for their tissues right now. They're worried about what it means for a possible surgery. They're worried about what it means for their life outside of just your clinic. We're learning more and more about the impact that our language and words can have on our patients. And today we spoke to Jared Hall, who's a physio, and he's written extensively on the biopsychosocial model. He's spoken a lot about manual therapy, pain science, simplifying clinical practice. It's a wonderful Instagram page to follow. We uncovered a little bit more practical strategies on how you might nudge a patient's beliefs, asking for permissions, and the papers that uncovered some of this research. I really found this practical and insightful chat with Jared. My name is Michael Risk and this is Physio Explained. Welcome Jared, thank you for joining us. Thank you, I appreciate you guys having me on. We were going to talk about the power of words which I've been stalking your Instagram and I think your content around this subject has been super valuable. I wanted to start with What was the initial review or research that led down this path that showed us the importance and power of the words we use? That's a great question. But for me in particular, the information that I came across was from Ben Darlow, the study that he put out in uh, 2013, the enduring impact of what clinicians say to their patients. Then two years later, he published Easy to Harm, Hard to Heal, talking about back pain in particular. And those studies were really, really impactful for me. And I kind of changed my perspectives on, you know, how important the language that we can use, choose to use or choose not to use with patients is. And that led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And, you know, I went pretty deep on that content and I really, uh, really embodied it and, you know, brought it into a lot of the things that I do. And, you know, I think my perspectives have evolved over time on what that looks like and what that means. But without a doubt, those were the, the two research papers that were pivotal in me kind of changing my perspectives on language. I guess two questions from that is, how was the study done? Was it, was it observational? And what did they actually show? Did they show a correlation or worse outcomes when those words were used? In particular, the enduring impact of what clinicians say to their patients, that was a qualitative study where they actually just sat down and they, they did interviews with patients or that they had patients fill out reflective questionnaires of, you know, what did they believe about what's going on with their their pain, whether it's back pain or knee pain or whatever it may be? And, you know, what impact did that have on their life? And there's multiple stories that go through about one in particular that, that I used early on when I was teaching a lot was a patient talking about how she had been told how weak her back was, how unstable her spine was, how not robust her body was to the point where maybe she had even decided to withhold from having kids or, or even have an abortion to terminate a pregnancy because of the impact that a clinician's language had on that patient. And there's different patients that were construction workers that reported that, you know, the language that they heard from their healthcare provider about being broken and and worn out and torn down and ripped apart and unstable and jelly out of the donut, all of these different things caused a lot of fear, caused a lot of anxiety, maybe reduced their pain-related self-efficacy a bit. 
and maybe even led to a little bit of what you could call learned helplessness, where, you know, a person kind of has given up hope that they can take control of their life or take control of their pain and made them fearful that they weren't going to be able to provide for themselves or made them fearful that they weren't going to be able to enjoy in life, whether it's work-related activities, family-related activities, just because they, they weren't physically capable of doing that because they believed that their bodies were falling apart, essentially. So that qualitative data to hear what patients truly believe or people in pain truly believe about their bodies and believe about what pain means and how frequently that comes from healthcare providers, that's what really opened up my eyes and and made me see how important it was that I watch my language when I talk to people. It hits home, doesn't it? Like, you can be a bit flippant and be like, oh, yeah, I, I use the word degeneration. But when you get an example like someone no longer wanted to have kids, that really hits home how powerful that can be. Did you notice that in yourself? Like after reading that paper, it would have been a bit transformative and a bit of self-reflection. What did you notice yourself doing in consults around that time? It was twofold. I noticed some things about, about myself. So I have a history of having a back injury, having a a spondy, and I became very fearful of extension loading. I did not want to load my back into extension. I was worried that I was going to make things worse. I was worried that I was going to end up, you know, with my spine just slipping out of place and all this sort of stuff. And when I started recognizing the impact that those thought processes were having on what I was willing to engage in myself and how far I was willing to push my body in the directions that I was limiting myself in, that was one thing. And that self-reflection made me even further realize if I'm a healthcare provider and I know quite a bit more about the human body and the capacity for adaptation and the capacity for healing and progressive overload and all that sort of stuff, and I'm still hesitant, I'm still scared, I'm still having maybe what we can call them maladaptive movement patterns, or you know, I'm changing the way that I'm moving, I'm avoiding certain activities and exercises. I can only imagine that in a lot of cases, that would be magnified for for your average person that doesn't have that understanding of the human body that maybe a lot of us do have. And, you know, when we say the term degenerative, or we think about a torn rotator cuff, we recognize, oh, well, I know that I can load that. I know that I can put that person through exercise. I know that I can modulate that pain. I know that I can do various things. And it's going to get better. And it doesn't mean that they automatically need surgery. It doesn't mean that they automatically are incapable of, you know, doing anything in that rotator cuff tear or or that degeneration is just going to get markedly worse with load. We inherently understand what that means. But when you say the words degenerated or wearing away or holding on by a thread or whatever it is, or the worst spine, the worst back I've ever seen, right, to somebody that's not super encouraging. And I'm not going to sit here and go so far as to say that that will consistently make their pain worse directly. And there are some, there's some research studies to say maybe patient priming and maybe, you know, short-term modulation of expectations could change pain pressure thresholds and, and that sort of thing. But what I will say with a fair amount of confidence is that could change a person's perspective on their own self-image and what they're willing to engage in. And what we do know is inactivity and unwillingness to load tissues, unwillingness to have movement variability and and exercise and be active. Well, that's definitely a recipe for a less healthy life. It's a recipe for more disability and potentially, you know, in a roundabout way, a recipe for more pain because it does maybe lead to various neurological changes and various tissue level changes that aren't as conducive for a healthy body or, or less pain. 
you touched on some really interesting things there that leaning into clinician beliefs and having injuries, I always thought was helpful as a health professional. But I think what you're touching on there is that sometimes we might have fear because we've had that injury and been through that experience and we could paint that over our patient negatively, but it can also flip the other way. We might have complete apathy like, oh yeah, I've had a rotator cuff tear, like you've said, and it's completely fine because I know it's completely fine because I've got 10 years of study, research and experiences behind me. So if a young health professional is listening how would we self-reflect on that? Because it's a hard thing to do on the run is like self-reflect. What are our biases? What are our past injuries? What are some of the words we've used? Do you have any tips or strategies to self-reflect there? Well, the one thing that I would say of the utmost importance is to make sure that you don't become flippant and that you do validate a person, right? People in pain are in pain and it's a very scary thing. People are worried about what it means for their tissues right now. They're worried about what it means for a possible surgery. They're worried about what it means for their life outside of just your clinic. And I think that if you invalidate people, you know, we, we already talked about maybe making things worse by adding fuel to the fire. But on the flip side of that coin, if you're invalidating people and you're not, you're not showing them that you believe that what they're going through is real, that what they're going through is impactful, that could be just as detrimental because, you know, people don't feel heard. They don't feel respected. So I know that I did this. I was bad about this early on in my career when a patient came in and I started learning all this cool research about, oh man, all these people have rotator cuffs and all these people have degenerative disc disease and people have lumbar disc herniations and they don't have pain and it's fine. Well, I would just information dump that stuff onto patients. I would just tell them, oh, you're going to be fine. Everybody has this stuff. It's totally okay. And looking back, that is the quickest way to invalidate what a person's going through to immediately close off your ability to build a good relationship with them, to make them feel not listened to and not heard, make them feel like you don't necessarily believe them. So I think that we can present that information to people, but it probably needs to be in a way that you first validate what it is that they're going through and that you respect and recognize that it's pretty difficult and that it could be scary and that maybe they are very concerned. And then you ask for permission to educate them more. And that's probably the biggest game changer that I personally learned in my practice is to put a heavy emphasis on asking for permission to engage in the education with people. Because if you're just throwing information at them, you're just dumping information on them, it could, it could invalidate them or it could seem overwhelming. But if you sit down with them and you ask for permission to share some information with them and you reflect on that with them, it's a completely different scenario because they've allowed you that first they feel validated. And secondarily, they've allowed you to enter into that discussion with them on equal playing field rather than kind of preaching down at them or the, the traditional paternalistic model of healthcare. How do you unpack someone's, let's say in the interview, you've, you've realized there's a couple of unhelpful beliefs. Maybe they feel something is broken or slipped we definitely want to ask for permission, as you've just suggested, to enter the education phase. And then how do you do that? Because that's tricky. It's still tricky even if you have permission to nudge someone's beliefs or share literature. What have you found is helpful in that scenario? I think it's going to sound easy, but it's definitely not. The two main directions I think you can go after that is to 
maybe give anecdotal stories of people that are very similar to that person who you've seen get better or you've been able to work with and they did get better, even though they didn't think that they could, et cetera. Human beings don't respond well to just boatloads of information. They don't respond well to scientific data. They don't respond well to graphs and charts and numbers. They respond well to stories. They respond well to emotion and feeling like they, you know, something resonates with them. So that's one way is, is sharing anecdotal stories of success of people that are really similar to them. I try to avoid saying, I saw somebody that was exactly the same as you because no, no two people are exactly the same. And somebody probably doesn't necessarily believe that other people was exactly the same to them. I worked with somebody that had a really similar situation to you going on. And, you know, it was tough and they were really concerned about it and it was hard work, but they were able to gradually over the course of X amount of time, really build a lot of strength, a lot of tolerance, a lot of, you know, decreased sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for the particular person. And they were able to work through this. Would you be willing to try? You know, I, I have some ideas for some plans in the direction that we can go and I've seen it be successful. Would you be willing to try that? So again, you've closed by asking for permission to engage in that treatment plan. And you've laid out the prognosis of what you think it will look like. So they have a rough expectation of what maybe their course of care is going to look like. Secondarily is just basically to steal from Peter O'Sullivan and try to create, you know, clinical experiments or different exposures where you maybe prove to somebody that they're capable of something or that their tissues are stronger than they thought that they were, or they're more robust, or they're less unstable than they thought that they were. And then you can reflect on that and gently confirm them with their own strength, right? So I, I like to sometimes pull in that cognitive functional therapy aspect that I learned from Peter O'Sullivan, and it pulls on a lot of aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy and set up those clinical experiments or those clinical exposure scenarios where you get to confront people with their own strength. So there's definitely giving hope. There's sharing some analogies and stories of previous results. Stories are powerful. Emotions are powerful rather than the facts and the logic. And then I guess the movement experiments to actually show them, get that buy-in going. I wanted to nudge into one of your posts I saw around don't mind if you do a bit of manual therapy or ISTM, provided you are empowering, have a positive narrative, and the patient's walking away with the right beliefs. Is that something you live by? Is that, you know, are you someone who still uses some of the, the manual therapies, but really encourage that positive narrative? Or was that a post to show that more you're open to multiple ways of treating? What was your perspective when you wrote that? It's a little bit of both. I recognize that that post could be a slippery slope for some people to say that, well, you're just saying that anything and everything is okay and it doesn't matter what you do. Well, it's like, no, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you look at the literature and you look at spinal manipulation, or if you look at joint mobilizations, or you look at dry needling, or you look at instrument-assisted soft tissue, what you see is globally, these things get about the same effect. And then honestly, when you compare that to exercise, well, that doesn't get much better of an effect either than those things in isolation. And what that tells me is that people are getting better for things that probably aren't as specific to the individual treatment as we like to think, right? So you try to look for the similarities between th those things. Well, the similarity between all of those manual therapies is that they often 
meet patient expectations, they often allow a social bond to be built between the clinician and the patient. They allow for therapeutic alliance. They allow for short-term pain modulation, which people enjoy in the short term, at least. And maybe that increases their adherence to other parts of the program. Maybe that helps them, you know, have a higher expectation of the other interventions that you engage in. And all of those things also have time in common. There is a certain amount of time that passes from the initial measurement to the end measurement, and we're seeing similar outcomes. So that tells me that none of these are special. All of them do similar things. And instead of really fighting aggressively over which one is better, recognize that they all probably aren't that great. And there's things that are, you know, larger aspect things that we're doing when we interact with people, when we engage in a gradual progressive exposure to movement of any sort. I think it's a wonderful first step for young health professionals who are feeling a little overwhelmed, like their assessments have to completely change and their treatments have to completely change. I think to flip that script, a great starting point is to start with some of the messages you've said in this podcast, the the pink flags, the positive messaging, getting some stories and analogies and bringing some hope into your treatment. That is a great place to start. So thank you for sharing that message and thank you for your time today, Jared. No, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. Mm-hmm.